From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. Federal employees have fewer than 75 days to get vaccinated. The White House says it will require all federal workers to receive the COVID-19 vaccine. A new executive order calls it essential for government employees to protect themselves and avoid the spread of the virus. President Biden also signed a second order that includes federal contractors. A forthcoming sustainability plan from the Biden administration will examine disclosures of greenhouse gas emissions from suppliers and policies to mitigate climate-related financial risks. The plan is the result of an executive order President Biden signed in May. That order directed the Federal Acquisition Regulatory Council to require large federal suppliers to publicly disclose greenhouse gas emissions and climate-related financial risk. The order also required setting science-based reduction targets. One out of every three women in the Air Force or Space Force report experiencing sexual harassment during their military career, according to those who responded to an inspector general survey. The investigation is part of the Air Force's research into race and gender inequality in its ranks. The IG's first report, released last year, looked at racial disparities and focused on African-American service members. Conclusions are based on more than 100,000 survey responses from airmen and guardians and follow-up discussion sessions. The fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic provided a dress rehearsal for confronting the catastrophic risk of climate change. But unlike the disease, there is no vaccine to solve climate change. Alice Hill is former special assistant to President Obama and senior director for the for resilience on the National Security Council staff. She's currently a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Her new book is The Fight for Climate After COVID-19. Alice, welcome. Thank you. So glad to be able to join you. So what have we learned from the pandemic that can be applied to dealing with climate change? Simply put, preparation matters. The more we think about and plan for and imagine future catastrophic risk, the better off we'll be when that risk materializes. You know, you write that mitigation alone will no longer keep us safe. Is it too late to reverse the damage? I mean, is, is it admitting defeat? Well, of course, uh, we have a world that is heating up because of human activity unequivocally 99 percent of scientists say that we're warming because of emissions or carbon pollution from human activity and as that accumulates uh, we are warming at a more rapid rate your question goes to whether we can stop that we can't stop it altogether but we can have a much better outcome if we cut our emissions. That means that we change to clean energy and make different choices going forward. But we'll also need to adapt because those emissions, the pollution forms like a blanket around the globe. And remember when you were a little kid, you went to sleep and your mom put a blanket on your bed at night and all of a sudden you started to heat up. Well, the same thing's happening with our planet. We need to address all those emissions, but we're also gonna have some delayed heating just from the 
pollution emissions that we already have in the atmosphere. So you say not just mitigation, but adaptation. What does that mean? Well, adaptation means essentially preparing for the types of disasters that accompany rising temperatures, and that's drought, deeper droughts than we've experienced, wildfires, bigger wildfires than we've ever experienced. You know, Californians learned last year a new word, gigafire, for a fire that burns more than a million acres at once. We're seeing extreme rainfall or what ex emergency managers call rain bombs. So much rain falls at once as it did with Ida that our subway stations are flooded because we haven't prepared those subway stations for this kind of rain. So we need to think ahead and make better choices about building and land use going forward. So not to make an understatement, but this is a huge problem to tackle. What's what's the role of the federal government? What should government leaders look at doing right now? Well, the federal government has a very important role to support state, local, tribal leaders as they make decisions about how to prepare for climate impacts. And the reason why the federal government needs to support is because all of these impacts, even though climate change is a global problem, the pollution is caused by people all over the world, the impacts, these disastrous events, occur very locally. And so the federal government can play a role in providing the very best science so that local leaders can understand their risks. It can provide programs that help local leaders deal with the houses that are already in the floodplain, the schools that already are subject to being burned in wildfires, help them deal with that, but also provide incentives to get state and local leaders to help people move away from risk instead of toward risk. You know, right now, more people are moving into areas at risk of flooding and at risk of wildfire than into other areas and we need to reverse that trend. What about the private sector, Alice? What role do they play in supporting the government in planning and strategy and, and technology? Well, the private sector, of course, is a very important here. It, it can help finance, most notably, to help make some of these investments. But it can also look at itself to make sure that it is prepared. These companies are prepared for climate risk. Unfortunately, our surveys show that on most boards of Fortune 100 companies, there's very little representation of people with knowledge about climate change. And that means that companies may not appreciate what's ahead. There was a study done by New York Stern Business School uh, reviewing 1188 resumes of directors on Fortune 100 companies. And out of those resumes, it determined only five, not 5%, five people had any background in environment or climate change. So we need to have everyone start thinking about, well, what does it mean if it's gonna get hotter here, we're gonna have extreme heat events, or we're gonna have more flooding or wildfires, or we're going to see dramatic long lasting drought. What does that mean for business operations? What does it mean for the community where my people live and work? Can they even get to work if it's flooding? 
during a sunny day, as we're seeing on the eastern seaboard, just because of sea level rise, all those decisions need to be looked at to have better decisions going forward that keep people safe and keep companies' bottom lines healthier. Coming next, more of my conversation with Alice Hill, straight ahead on Government Matters, adapting to climate risks for the federal government. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back to our discussion on the path forward on climate change with Alice Hill. She's former special assistant to President Obama and senior director for resilience policy on the National Security Council staff and author of the book, The Fight for Climate After COVID-19. Alice, your book says that federal leaders should be preparing for concurrent, consecutive and compounding disasters. Is that what we're looking at? Multiple disasters coming one after the other? Yes, that's what the pandemic has shown us. You know, I don't think that FEMA ever imagined that they would have to respond to a disaster in all 50 states and six territories. But that's exactly what happened with the pandemic. And then you layer on, just look at 2020, what occurred in terms of natural disasters. We had so many named storms in the Atlantic basin that we had to change to the Greek alphabet. We ran out of name uh, and letters. We had wildfires that were devastating to the American West. We've seen that that wildfire smoke travels across the entire United States. And we saw heat extremes. And then this year we saw even greater heat extremes. So these disasters fall in multiple locations at once. And as they compound, because you have to evacuate people from a flood zone into shelters, but those shelters are already at risk of spreading COVID, we need to step back and rethink how do we deliver emergency services when we face a world with a far greater risk of multiple disasters occurring at once. So you recommend actually preparing before disaster strikes. Absolutely. That is the most important thing any of us can learn is that if we spend money today to prepare and for and reduce risk, we will save so much money at the end. But more importantly, families, communities will get back on their feet much more quickly because their school isn't destroyed because they still have a home that's intact. And that means the economy hums and that means that all of us can have thrive in a world with far more disasters. The basic figure is that for every dollar we spend on reducing risk, we save about $6 in future damages. So that's pretty attractive to make those investments today. Alice, I want to ask you about climate migrants, particularly from Central America. What have we seen in the past and what are we likely to see in the future? You know, when I was in the federal government at DHS, I uh, encountered the first wave of children from Central America, the Northern Triangle, that's uh, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. We saw a surge of kids coming north. And as we look at that, and that of course is now continuing, we're seeing ever more migrants. I call them survival migrants, a term that Alexander Betts, an author coined, but these are people looking 
for a way to survive in the face of growing risks. One of the risks in Central America is climate change. They've had devastating drought. They've had a coffee rust that's a fungus that spreads and it spreads during storms. They've had uh, two back-to-back -back hurricanes. And when these poor countries are hit, they lose their livelihoods, they lose their, lose their homes, and they're already nations facing corruption, gang violence, and people decide, I'm gonna go in search of a better life. So for the United States, one of the most important things we can do is help those nations thrive in the face of rising temperatures and the disasters that come with a hotter world. Well, in your book, you say that we need to jumpstart resilience. What does that mean? What policies need to be put in place for that? We need to make sure at the end of the day, for all of our decision-making, we have considered climate risk. And that would jumpstart us in being able to build resilience to climate change. So one example is to make sure that we screen all of our investments, all of our federal investments, to make sure that they're resilient, to make sure that they will withstand the future. And that would be, for example, not pouring money into areas that are at great risk of flooding. So the, you, the U.S. needs to examine, should we be supporting development in the floodplain if we know that those homes and businesses and schools will be damaged? A similar thing should be, is this program going to be strong in the face of climate change. Take international development. We're going to invest in a malaria program. Well, we know that with, with malaria and with climate change, mosquitoes carry the malaria. Their whole geographic spread will change. And we need to examine that as we make those choices. Essentially, every decision maker in the federal government needs to be aware of and consider climate risk and whether that will affect the decision which we're making today. And in most instances, it will because climate change affects virtually everything. All right. Well, Alice, thanks so much. Congratulations on the book. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you. What a pleasure. Up next, $4 trillion in pandemic spending becomes hard to trace. Straight ahead on Government Matters, my conversation with the president and CEO of the National Academy of Public Administration on how a new center could support collaboration among all levels of government. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. In 2020 and 2021, Congress allocated COVID relief packages totaling $4 trillion. It's the largest economic stimulus in U.S. history. Dealing with the unprecedented health and economic crisis of the pandemic required coordination among multiple federal agencies, as well as working with state, local, and tribal governments. The National Academy of Public Administration has established a new center to strengthen collaboration and cooperation among leaders at all levels of government. Terry Gurton is president and CEO of the National Academy of Public Administration. Terry, nice to see you. Nice to see you, Mimi. Great to be here. So it's called the Center for Intergovernmental Partnerships. Why did you set it up? What will it do? Well, 
we've been thinking about the center for a while, but Napa's been involved in intergovernmental partnerships for a long time. It's how our government works. And so if you're going to do public administration, you need to deal with all the levels of government. But a couple of years ago, when we announced our grand challenges in public administration, we really realized that we were not going to make progress on all of those if we only stuck at the federal level. We needed to bring our partners in at the state and local levels because things like water systems and meaningful work are not resolved only at the federal level. You really need your local and, and state governments to work well. And then, of course, COVID happened, and, and we all saw firsthand how important it was that states and counties and communities were integrated in their approach in order to be able to meet the needs of their citizens. So we said, it's urgent, the time is now. We really think that this is a place where the academy can make a difference. So one of the goals of the center is to improve coordination. Right. Something as big as COVID relief is huge. How do you even begin with that? Well, <clears throat> we learned some lessons from the report we did uh, a few months ago with the National Association of Counties on the coronavirus relief fund. That was $150 billion that went directly to counties to help address the needs of their communities. And we learned some lessons from that. The first one was that you can't just have one agency who's responsible for this. We're dealing with integrated impacts in communities, and there's no one federal agency that owns all of those. So we needed a national response, not an agency response to it. The second important thing that we learned was federal agencies aren't really structured to manage these kinds of integrated programs. So as these kinds of things roll out in the future, and we saw it with the uh, recovery program uh, law that went into uh, effect. You need a program office, so you have people dedicated to managing and, and designing and delivering the program. And the third piece that was really key was you needed to build guidance on the front end where the federal agencies took impact or took input from the communities that were going to be receiving this. The, that wasn't necessarily done in the first package under CARES, and what you had was a lot of confusion in the communities about what to so do with I this I wanted money. to ask you about yeah. that, because were the parameters set clearly? Were they too restrictive? Did people know, how am I supposed to take this money and spend it? Can I use it for my deficit? Can I use it for, you know, the, the you know, I don't have enough tax money coming in now. People are out of work. How, how do you know how to do that? Right. Well. The, the key piece, and one of the things that the center is going to be very active on, is figuring out how to get people together on the front end to design these programs well. There was guidance, Treasury put together guidance, but the guidance wasn't particularly clear about how communities needed to spend the funds, needed to account for the funds, what they could do with the funds, how long they had to spend the funds. And you can appreciate in our government system, we're very concerned about accountability. Um, and so folks were very nervous about spending funding in creative ways if they weren't sure that they had the permission on the front end. Yeah, because so you can get into big trouble if you, you get into big trouble. spending uh, it on something that you weren't supposed to. Right, and nobody wants to be there. Everybody wants to do the right thing. And so it's going to be really important. Uh, we saw it in the recovery program. We will see it when there's an infrastructure package. We will see it when there's a human services infrastructure package. The design up front is really critical so that you get the accountability, but you also provide the flexibility so that you can have the outcomes that you want. This is a massive amount of money, um, and we want to make sure that we do it right. And as you said, accountability is going to be key. Right. So how do we put things in place now 
before more money goes out that the American public can be sure okay, this, was, this money was used properly and effectively. Right, well, the great news is we have lots, lots of new information systems. They don't all talk to each other just yet, right? But we need to make sure that we design the, the reporting structure from the front end to make it as seamless and as simple and as natural as possible. But to do that, you need the oversight community involved in the program design, right? The, the GAO needs to be there, the agency IGs need to be there, the state accountability folks need to be involved in the program design from the front so everyone is comfortable with the reporting mechanisms and you're actually reporting on the outcomes that you want to measure, not just on whether things went through the funding pipes in the right process. Well, speaking steps. of measuring outcomes, how will you know your center is successful? Well, um, we're encouraged from the beginning with the um, partnerships that we've been building. Uh, there's a lot of interest in this. There's a lot of um, commitment to the fact that we need to be active in this space. So what we're going to be looking at is a couple of things. Our independent research, so looking at these kinds of programs and making sure that we can report back on promising practices and then seeing those promising practices turned around into guidance for the next round uh, is really important to upfront. And then the second uh, big activity that the center will pursue is convenings. One of the things we know um, from, our, from our previous work is that there are large communities that have staff and are very comfortable dealing with federal grants. There are lots and lots of small communities that have never seen this amount of money and don't know what to do with it. So bringing uh, groups of people together, especially regionally, with regional governments who are focused on the same kinds of issues and sharing these best practices to facilitate community learning so that we then again see the next time we have to do this because we'll have to do it again again whether it's infrastructure or another crisis or something like that we'll be back at that table again we want to put the processes and practices in place now to make them work better the next time great thank you so much terry for coming in and sharing that with us Mimi, great to be here thank you if you miss an episode of government matters it's on our website at govmatters.tv and tell us what you thought about today's program you can reach us on linkedin Follow us to get the latest updates and see what's coming up on the show. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Katherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.